That's so calming. <laughs> Might go to sleep. Um, good morning, everyone. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Um, my name is Jacob. I serve here as our youth pastor, uh, and I get called in to pray, or not to pray, to preach on, on the, uh, national holidays like this. Uh, <laughs> um, usually when I come up to preach, um, I will have some sort of like illustrated slides and stuff like that. I didn't have time to do that this week, so you have to forgive me. Instead, I've choreographed an interpretive dance that I will, no, I'm just kidding. I've read, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. Uh, I won't curse your eyes with that. <laughs> My terrible, wobbly legs. Um, so I asked, I asked my mom. My mom's into football this morning. Um, I asked my mom who she was rooting for. She said the 49ers. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be rooting for the Chiefs. Um, yeah, uh, so... Um, if you're new with us, we've been walking through the seven rhythms of uh, what we would call our 10-week discipleship journey, our 10-week uh, journey uh, here at Sunrise, which is kind of our, our discipleship pathway. It's how we get people involved in the life of the church. Um, so we just finished one of the, the first uh, rhythms, which is reflection on scripture. Uh, and we're moving today, our, we've moved last week into prayer. Um, so this month we're talking about prayer. Uh, so today we're going to look at a really weird passage, a passage that I think is troubling on a number of levels um, in Exodus chapter 32. So if you'll go ahead and flip there with me. And as you're flipping there, as you're scrolling there, tapping your way there, um, I'll tell you a little story. When I was Eight years old, uh, I lived in a little house, uh, it wasn't a little house, it was a big house, in Aloha. Um, and on our left, uh, there was a guy that lived uh, next to us. And I do mean that there was a guy that lived next to us. His name was Guy. This guy's name was Guy. I don't think he was related to Guy Fieri, I didn't ask, to be fair. Um, guy was such a good guy. Uh, he would bring us over candy on Halloween. He was always super nice to us when he saw us around the neighborhood. And one thing I remember about Guy that's kind of funny is Guy had, it seems, no sense of temperature. Um, he would be out in the middle of freezing weather in his shorts. Raise your hand if you know somebody like this. Maybe you are this person. I don't understand you, but... Um, He'd be out there in a t-shirt and denim cargo shorts, you know, just shoveling the driveway, uh, looking down at all the weaklings who feared frostbite, right? He was a cold-blooded man, and he had no limits. So, uh, this guy, uh, literally, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that because it's so funny to me. Um, this guy had a beautiful red car that was parked out in his driveway. And from my memory, it kind of looked like a sports car, a red sports car. Now, I was eight. So it maybe it was like a Toyota Corolla, and I was just impressed, but I remember it being like a cherry red beauty of a car. Now, we had a rule when it came to Guy's house. I had been told this rule before. My dad told me not to play around in Guy's yard because, you know, trespassing. Um, but I had a bunch of neighborhood friends that I would play with, and we would play, you know, we would, we would play zombies, or we would play cops and robbers, or we would play soldiers. And we'd be running around the neighborhood with our Nerf guns. So there was one day I remember, I think it was a summer day, I was playing with my friends, and I went in Guy's yard. And I was ducking behind his car, and I had my little toy pistol, right, my plastic toy pistol. And I was sitting like this. And it was time for me to attack. 
So I got up like this, and as I got up, I felt scratch. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And I looked, nice long scratch in his car, in his beautiful cherry car. Now I figured, you know, I'm like eight years old, so I'm like, let me just a little spray paint. <laughs> little, little, uh, little fingernail polish, right as rain, right? No, bad idea, bad, wrong. So I told my dad what happened. I come in, I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. I was playing in guy's yard. I think I might have scratched his car. I'm thinking, this is no big deal. Easy fix, right? My dad looked mortified. <laughs> he, was like, he was like, what did you do? So he goes over and he looks at the damage, inspects the damage, goes over and knocks on guy's door, has a conversation with him. Meanwhile, I'm watching through the window. My, I'm starting to get butterflies, like, what have I done here? Like, what have I done? And then my dad came back after the deliberations, went and talked with my mom, and then came out to talk to me, to, to offer me the verdict. And uh, my, my, my mind's racing, right? And he said, we agreed on $500 for the fix. Now, my dad might have been being generous here. I don't know. I, I, I've never had to paint a car myself, so I don't know how much it, it genuinely costs. But when I heard $500, I nearly soiled my dungarees um, because that's crazy. And so I'm eight years old. I'm thinking, like, do I have to sell a kidney? There are ethical restrictions around that, unfortunately. Um, dumb rules. But my, my parents, gracious and merciful, long-suffering and just, decided that they would pay for almost all of the damage for the car. My dad couldn't get a new TV for the house that year because of my disobedience. But even though I didn't listen and I ignored his rules, he still stood up for me and interceded on my behalf that day. And ever since that day, I've been obviously paranoid of touching other people's cars. Um, but more than that, I often think back on that day as a day where I saw the love my parents had, to me, had for me in action. I didn't deserve them standing by my side, but stand by my side, they did. And I think this is an apt analogy for the heartbeat that God has for us. So this story with my dad reminds me of the story that we're going to be seeing today. So again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. And because we're 32 chapters deep into Exodus at this point, I want to outline what's happened in the story. So from at this point in the story... Here's what's gone on. The, the Israelites have been rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery by Moses through the power of God and the mighty plagues that he brings upon Egypt. They're out. They've been chased to the Red Sea. They've seen their enemies washed away by the Red Sea. They've been fed with bread in the wilderness, um, the manna in the wilderness. They've seen water flow from the rock when they were thirsty. And they finally made it to the, rock, or to, the, to the rock of God, to the mountain of God, big rock, big rock. Um, they made it to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the place where God had conscripted Moses, where he had chosen Moses to be his mouthpiece. So this is a big moment. They purify themselves as they come close to the mountain so that they can finally be ushered in as God's select people, as his chosen people. Um, God goes up on, I'm sorry, not God. God comes down onto the mountain 
um, in, in this cloud of thick smoke and fire, and there's lightning flashing, and all of the people are terrified. And from the mountain booms the voice of God, telling them the first Ten Commandments that will act as the foundation of the agreement between God and this people, the covenant. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God to deliberate about all kinds of things having to do with this new society that they're planning to build in the promised land. Things like the places of worship, like uh, justice for criminals, like the way that the land would be divvied up. All those kinds of things get talked about. And finally, the ceremony commences. The people have purified themselves. Moses basically is, uh, he acts almost like, a, um, like an efficient for a wedding right? So he, he, he uh, has them repeat the vows to God. They promise again and again that they are going to obey God's command. Um, and then it's official. They're covenant buds at this point, God and Israel. Uh, Yahweh would be Israel's God. Israel would be Yahweh's people. So that's kind of where we're at in the story. Moses has gone back up the mountain at this point. We've gotten eight chapters before this of all these details. They're, uh, you know, God is he's like downloading all of these dreams that he has for Israel into Moses. And, and he's going to send him back down the mountain to, to relay all this information. And at the very end of this long eight chapters of God talking, God offers Moses the tablets. And this is where we get a, a switch in the story. It changes from Moses and God up on the mountain down to the base of the mountain. What's going on below? It's almost like one of those comic book bubbles where it's like, meanwhile, right? Meanwhile, at the base of the mountain. And here's where we're going to start. So go with me to Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, right? he's been up there at this point for 40 days and 40 nights, so that's a long time, and he's left his brother Aaron in charge. The people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. First off, what an aggressive way to approach your leader, right? Up! so demanding. It reminds me of, the, uh, of that meme from Mean Girls that goes around of them in the, pulling up in the convertible, and they're like, get in, loser, we're going shopping. It's like, get in, loser, we're going idolatrizing. <laughs> Idolatrating. I don't know the verb for that. Um, it goes on. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses has been gone for a little over a month. People are getting antsy. Moses was their connection point with God, and they no longer feel like they have that, so they're getting antsy. How do we connect with the God that brought us up out of Israel? So they conscript Aaron. They bring Aaron in to solve the issue. Make us something that we can worship. The irony in this is that they're at the base of the mountain of God, and like I said, God is manifesting at the top of this mountain. They are closer than any other people group on the face of the earth to God. And yet they're thinking, man, I just feel like we need something to worship, you know? I'm getting antsy. So it goes on. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. You guys ever leave your sibling in charge for just a little too long? And then they ruin everything. Moses has. 
There's a particular insult here I want to highlight, though. The golden rings that they were wearing, were wearing were probably the same golden rings. They were probably part of the same loot that they got in Exodus chapter 11, earlier in the story, when they were leaving Egypt. The night before they leave, God tells the, the, the Israelites, go ask the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold. Basically, they're putty in your hands. They're so afraid of you. So go ask them for articles of silver and gold. They'll give, they'll give them over to you. And sure enough, the Egyptians do. So it's kind of like God offers them an engagement ring, and now they're here melting it down to turn it into an idol. Not good. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. This is verse 4b. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that last bit, talking about rising up to play, is probably a Hebrew idiom having to do with adultery. So they're painting an image here for you. Aaron has not only here broken the first and second commandments, right? Do not worship any other gods. Do not make any graven images. He's not only broken both of those immediately, right? But he's also attributed to these, this idol, the very name, the very title, the, the, the victory that the God of Israel had won for his people. There's a song by Coulter Wall, a songwriter named Coulter Wall, called Kate McCannon, and it's a song, it's a really dark song, about a man who shoots his wife, and he's in prison for shooting his wife. And the song begins with the man describing how he first met his wife at a creek. So keep that in mind. They met at a creek. And the song ends with these words. Oh, and one day I come home to find my darling angels not inside. So I made for the creek where she and I did meet and found her with some other lover. After these lines, the song starts picking up speed and the, the chords get more disparate and kind of crazy sounding. It's almost like they're trying to, to create in you the sense of anxiety and chaos and confusion and rage. I think this is an, a really good analogy for what's going on here with Aaron and the golden calf. What he's just done is it's, it's like he's, he's gone to the place where he met his spouse and then went with another lover, right, cheated on there, them there. And so here's how God responds to this. This is verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. Interesting right? Not my people, your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And it's been commented, commented before that it sounds almost like when, when a, a mom and dad are like fighting. I'm sorry, not when they're fighting. When, when dad goes away to work and, and the mom and the kid are fighting, right? So mom and kid are going back and forth. They're arguing. They're fighting. And then dad comes home from work and mom goes to dad and says, you won't believe what your son said to me, right? Your son? Not like my son. No, your son, right? Because it couldn't be from me. It also could be that in, in God's omniscience, he's actually using the same language 
that Israel is using at the, at the base of the mountain. Remember that they called Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. But regardless of which two of these, or maybe both that's happening here, God is responding to Moses with this kind of loosening of his claim on Israel. And then listen to what he says next. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, leave me alone, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a greater nation, a great nation out of you. The Lord's long fuse, it seems, has finally run out, and he's ready to start fresh. And oh, how flattering, he chooses Moses as the material for his shiny new people after, you know, he's wiped out the old ones, right? He tells Moses, leave me alone, and I need to deal with this people. And shockingly, Moses doesn't. He doesn't leave God alone. Look what, look what it says. This is verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He turns it back on him. Your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? It's funny, he's almost turning to like PR, right? He's like, this is going to look really terrible to the Egyptians if, if you just brought us all out into the wilderness just to slaughter us, right? That's going to be confusing. It's bad press. And then he says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. A quick note from the Hebrew here. Um, that word turn is the Hebrew word shuv, and shuv is a very common word in the Hebrew, um, in the Hebrew Bible. Shuv can mean to turn. It can also mean, in extreme cases, to repent. Oof. That's a strong, that's strong language to use. There's obvious reasons why we would not put that word in our translations, it asks too many questions. It brings up too much confusion, some theological confusion, right? Because God can't repent, right? That would, that would be to say that God is doing something wrong. But it's interesting that that word's used here. I'll come back to that in a bit. But it strikes me as kind of a crazy word. Uh, let's go into verse 13. He goes on, this is Moses. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, not Jacob, Every other place that, where that, you hear that formulation, Abraham, Isaac, it's always Jacob. But here he says Israel. I think he's tying it to the people. He's saying Israel because they are the ones that are at, the at the bottom of the, of the mountain. It's like he's tying it to the nation. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised you I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken on his people, spoken of bringing on his people. I want to sit with you in this moment because I think this moment holds some real substance for us. Moses has sat on this mountain listening for 40 days straight at this point, and we have no record in the past eight chapters of him saying anything back to God. No response. Complete silence from Moses. After 40 silent days, as he's watching God's patience turn around, this is the moment he decides, I need to say something. I need to speak up. 
I can't let this continue. And Moses decides this is it. This is his moment. How easy would it have been for Moses to just stand aside? God comes to him, says, leave me alone. And he just says, okay. It'd be a lot easier. I mean, sure, there would have been some heartache. I mean, he's walking with this people. He's tied to this people in his heart. But at least he wouldn't have to stand up to the Lord, his God, to the creator of heaven and earth. And it's not like God is being unjust here either. The people are genuinely corrupt. They're genuinely unfaithful. They're an adulterous generation. And Moses doesn't even try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to paint them in a different light. He does something more risky, more forward, more blunt. He goes to God about God's self. He says, you swore by yourself that you would bring about this promise. Imagine standing in the piercing heat of the divine presence and deciding to correct the one that made you. It's like Moses is walking here naked into a nuclear explosion. Like, he's, he's talking back to the one who could undo his very existence. Moses has some major guts in this moment. Now, if you're feeling like some tension, some, some weird vibes from this passage, if you're not sure what to make of this, if you feel like some boundaries are being crossed, you are not alone. As I was reading this, the more I read it, the more it just felt absurd. Like, how do we preach this? But I think that this passage is actually meant to make us ask questions, that it's, dig it's asking us to dig a little deeper. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to propose an interpretation, that, and I'm trying to base this as best I can on what the whole of Scripture has to say about God and trying to read that into what we see here so that we're getting a full scriptural picture and not honing in on just one passage. So let's see if we can do that. But first, I, would, I do want to lay out uh, an important definition for, before we continue. This moment is a, a perfect example of what I would call, or what we in the church call, intercession. Um, and I know that's not a word that we hear very often, but basically it just means to pray for someone else. Intercession is to pray for someone else, to bring someone else's concerns, their case, their burden to God. So think of my dad going to negotiate on my behalf with Guy, right? To stand up to Guy, to go talk with Guy on my behalf, right? That's a good example. That's a good analogy for intercession. Now, this is a particularly crazy example of intercession because of how forward Moses is with God. Almost nowhere else will you see this kind of, like, forwardness with God. But I want to probe this example because God does relent, he does listen to Moses. So I think there's something we can learn here, both about God and about what it means to intercede. I think it's a good example. And in fact, this is going to be kind of my big idea for today. I think intercession acts as kind of a pipeline into the heart of God. So my big idea, if you take one thing home from today, I want it to be this. Intercession is the heartbeat of God. Intercession is the heartbeat of God. So let's go deeper into this passage and, and take a, another look. Here is this is mere mortal telling the all-knowing, all-powerful God to turn from his anger back to the person that he said that he'd be. Doesn't that seem a little insulting? 
Doesn't it feel a little demeaning? Like, if I was God, I feel like I would want to defend myself. Or I'd want to answer Moses back. Or even maybe punish him for saying something so rude. But God says nothing back to Moses. He doesn't respond at all. All it says is that the Lord relented. On its face, it seems like Moses gets God to change his mind. Which is kind of wild. Um... I think that here we're getting a seedling of God's character, an idea that's going to continue to grow and grow as the scriptures unfold. God has a heart for people who are willing to stand up on someone else's behalf and pray. For those who are willing to plead the case of somebody else. And I see two parts to this, I think. The first part is clear, and that is that Moses has great faith in this moment. Even though it seems like he's being disrespectful to God, He's actually pulling God back to his promise. He's leaning so hard on the promise that he's willing to almost be harsh in his response back, to be blunt, right? Because he knows that God is going to be the God that he said he would be, that he's, he swore by his very self. So that's the faith. That's the vertical. But there's also the horizontal, and that is the love that Moses has for his neighbor, the willingness that he has for this broken and rebellious people to stand in their place and say, listen, I need to say something. Please have mercy. So there's the love and there's the faith. And I think the cross section, the moment of meeting between these two is that moment of intercession, that moment of prayer. Um, and I think something about I think we see from this passage that something about intercession gets right to the heart of God. Think about a time in your own life when someone has spoken out on your behalf, has stood up for you. Maybe you got in trouble at school when you were growing up and your parents had to come in, but they kind of stuck up for you to the teacher or to the principal. Or maybe you were getting bullied and one of your friends stood up for you. Or maybe there were rumors being spread around about you and your, your friend actually stood up and... and, and pushed back against the rumors, stopped them from spreading. It feels really comforting to know that someone's willing to stand up for you, right? Just like me, you know, watching my dad go and talk with Guy. Like, I knew that I was in trouble. But it felt a little bit nicer knowing that my dad was in my corner. And I think at the same time, it probably took some guts for my dad to go and knock on Guy's door and say, my knucklehead scratched your car, right? It takes courage to be an intercessor. And I think God really loves the heart of someone who's willing to take that courageous step. Moses feels the threat here that's looming over his people, and he just can't stay silent. He leverages his very position, his chosenness by God. Like, it could have been that God really harshly responds here. He might even have been risking his life in this moment. And when he, God sees that, he relents. He softens. What a marvelous thing that our God listens. That he, he doesn't need to listen. He could just bulldoze everybody, but he doesn't. And here we see it particularly, I think, because Moses has the heart of an intercessor, that love and that faith. So now I'm going to make a really big leap. I'm going to jump to a different part of the scriptures. We're going to go into the New Testament. I have a really strong conviction that all of the scriptures point to Jesus. At every level, they point to Jesus. And if you look deep enough, you will find 
a tie-in to Jesus, a pointing forward to Jesus. So there's a sense in which this story is about Moses and what great faith he has, but there's also a sense in which this story isn't really all about Moses. This story is about Jesus. And I think if we trace the shadow that we see here of Moses interceding into the New Testament, I think we see a parallel with the heart of Jesus. So let's go into the New Testament. Um, There are many moments where we could point to Jesus himself acting as an intercessor. You could even make the argument that every healing, every prayer he ever offered, every teaching, every exorcism was in a way going to the, the Father for the sake of the people, right? It's that same movement of the upward and the, and the horizontal, right? The vertical and the horizontal. That same love is present in each of his interactions. So at heart, you could say that Jesus really was an intercessor in most of his interactions with people. But I think there's one moment that really presses this, and it's in Luke chapter 23, and it's where Jesus himself is on a mountain of his own. So let's turn to Luke chapter 23. It's verse 33 that I want to pick up on. It'll be a short passage, but it's powerful. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. They being Israel and the Romans that were aiding them. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, as he's been crucified, remember that, as he's been utterly rejected, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this moment, Jesus doesn't harden his heart, even when those who need him the most become his enemies. Instead, we see that Jesus stands up in love for them, even at the peak of their hatred for him. Jesus could have reacted with that same consuming anger that we see in Exodus 32, wiped them out, but he doesn't. Even as they brutalize and torture him and take pleasure in doing so, he stands in their corner and advocates for them. And an important thing to note if you're new to the church is that we we really do believe that Jesus wasn't just a perfect dude. He also was God in the flesh, we, we believe that this man was God. So when we look at Jesus, we are supposed to learn something about what it means for God to be God. And I think here we can see that at the heart, God is willing to be an intercessor. God, as he's revealed in Jesus, is willing to stand up for the broken and the lost. His heart breaks for those who are wayward, for those who are even his enemies, who have rejected him. In, in Jesus, we learn that intercession is the heartbeat of God. Could it be that the reason, the whole reason, why God threatens to destroy Israel in front of Moses is to get his reaction, is to test him and see, do you really have the heart of an intercessor? Because if Moses had just stood back and watched it happen, he would not have the same heart as Jesus. He'd be rejecting that spirit of intercession I think that's what's happening here. I think God's testing Moses. And I think it's clarified in the fact that he doesn't respond back. He just relents. If it is, if I'm right, if it is a test, Moses passes with flying colors. He shows that he has that same mark of intercession in his heart that burns in Jesus's at the cross. 
And then God listens because he sees in Moses the heart of an intercessor. Um, We hear the same loving heartbeat between Mount Calvary and Mount Sinai. But unlike Moses, Jesus' intercession is not for a mere moment. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able, he being Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is still interceding for the world right now at this very moment at the right hand of the Father with that same burning love that we see on Mount Calvary. He is interceding for you. In fact, your whole salvation hinges on his willingness to stand in your place, to intercede for you. Just like the Israelites could have never inherited the promised land alone, you can't inherit eternal life alone. And Jesus knows that. He knows that you're broken. He sees your brokenness, and he's still willing to stand for you. Even as you worship the golden calves in your life, even in the places where you are crucifying him in your heart. And I do believe all of us have places in our life where we are crucifying God in our heart. He's willing to stand for you. We see this again, though, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, with the Spirit. It says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans or through wordless groans. We don't know how to pray. We're still learning. We're like an infant learning to walk. But the Spirit is a gold medalist in prayer. And he stands next to us and trains us and walks with us and offers, offers us support in our prayers. He groans underneath our prayers, even when we don't know what to pray for. I think that as we are conformed into the image of Jesus, our heart is going to start to look like his. Calvin has this line, John Calvin has this line where he says that when we pray, it's as if we're praying with Christ's mouth. We are praying with Jesus' lips. The Spirit lays onto our lips the words of the crucified one. The intercessory heart is, is, is baked into us more and more. And I think we will begin to look more and more like Jesus. We will not stand to watch our neighbor rot. We will not stand to come alone to the throne of grace. We won't go to God with just our own stuff. The more, we will be, the more we're transformed to look like Jesus, the more we will bring those burdens of our brothers and sisters with us. Because we do not pray, my Father in heaven. We pray, our Father in heaven. We do not pray, give me this day my daily bread. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. When we stand in faith, in prayer, we come with the family of faith. We bring them as well. So now I'll go ahead and show you my cards. As I was preparing today's message, I was pretty convicted because I am far from a consistent intercessor. I oftentimes am forgetting, I will forget, to bring even the most crucial prayers to God. Raise your hand in the room if you've ever had somebody ask you to pray for them and you said yes and then forgot. Yeah, I'd say that happens pretty often to me. And maybe you suffer from that same complacency or the temptation to kind of make your prayer life about yourself, right? I fall into that often. 
There's a story that inspires me when it comes to prayer. Um, it's, a, it's a story that some of you may know. Um, it's from the early church. I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to that stuff, so you'll have to bear with me. I'm sorry. Um, there's this, this woman in the, the early church named Monica. Some of you already know where I'm going. I can see it on your faces. Um, Monica was a faithful believer, and she, but she had a son named Aurelius who was not she, who was far from a faithful believer, chasing everything that the world had to offer him, chasing all of the pagan philosophies that were around in his day. Think like four or 500 AD, right? That's, that's around the era we're, we're thinking. Uh, so a long time ago, he was chasing all the pleasures that this world had to offer. And Monica was brokenhearted over this and prayed for her son over and over again for 17 long years that God would change his heart. And after 17 long years of prayer, God answered. Aurelius was baptized, but not just baptized. He became one of the greatest theologians or pastors to have ever lived. You may know him as St. Augustine. Um, that was his story. And I believe it was through the prayers of his mother. In fact, I think he believes it was through the prayers of his mother that he was able to come to Jesus. I have a, a picture in my office of Monica standing next to Augustine, and, and it reminds me of the work of intercession and how important it is. And on a scroll Augustine in the picture is holding, it says, you are near even to those who have gone farthest from you. And I think that that is the hope that we hold in intercession, that even as we are praying for those who are walking around and dancing around golden calves in their life, who are crucifying God in their hearts, we have hope that God can reconcile them. Um, so in light of this passage, I want to take more seriously the work of intercession in my life. So here's my plan. I have in my pocket a smartphone, as many of you do. Um, and I, I love to keep lists on my phone, lists of different things, and kind of keeps my brain straight. So I'm going to keep a list of people that I want to pray for, and I'm going to commit to a number of people each day that I want to pray for. And I'm going to start small because I know that I'm weak in this area. And if you want to join me, I would encourage you, please start slow, start small. But I don't want to end my days I will, I'm going to try to refuse to end my days without having prayed for the people that I'm, that I'm going to God with, that I've committed to pray for. And then once it becomes second nature, maybe I'll add some more people. But maybe you'd like to join me in that. I know many of you in this room are very faithful intercessors. That This is like part of your gift to the church is that you are faithful intercessors. I could list some names around the room that I know are faithful intercessors. I want to thank you for what you've done for our church because I don't think we would be half the church that we are if you were not interceding for us. So thank you. Everybody give them a round of applause for you know who you are. I know there are a lot of people in this room who have contributed in that spiritual and intercessory sense. And I thank God, I, I think God listens to you. So here's my ask of you. If you're praying for us, would you pray for me that I become a more faithful intercessor, a more consistent intercessor? Would you pray for all those who stand with me in our weakness 
that we could become faithful intercessors because I would love my heart to light on fire in intercession. And I would love Sunrise Church to have as a staple of its, of its being intercession, deep and consistent and faithful intercession. So would you pray? Um, and then finally, I know there's some of you in this room who probably, this is, you're kind of new to all this, and you're maybe not even sure that whether this is for you. Maybe you're coming back to the church after a long time, and you've kind of fallen out of the rhythms. Here's my encouragement to you. Community is an important thing, and being able to walk, even with its, if it's just with a couple of people who can keep you accountable, who can keep you encouraged when you get discouraged, when you get exhausted, when life comes at you, it's so important. And start small. See what you can manage. We have tons of communities here at Sunrise, um, and I know there's tons of churches around that have tons of communities, and there's believers that live everywhere. So find some people. We have the 10-week ten, ten discipleship journey. That's kind of our fast track into, into groups. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty simple commitment. If you don't like it, it's two and a half months, and then you're done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. So maybe that's something you could try. But as we decide for each of ourselves what we're going to do after today, I think it's important that as we walk away, we remember that intercession is not our work. It's going on in the inner life of God. That the Spirit and the Son are interceding and that we are coming to join them. We're being invited into the work of God. We're being offered the tools of the carpenter as an apprentice and we're, he's offering to teach us. So what a marvelous invitation. What a, what a wonderful thing that our God listens. So let's go ahead and pray together. And I'll yeah, invite worship team up. Um, Father, we're about to celebrate communion together, um, which is a, a remembrance of what you did on Mount Calvary for us. Of the, of the intercession that you bore in your own body, represented through the cup and the bread. We're about to remember that together, to, to, partake, to partake in that ceremony of remembrance. Father, as we do that, as we remember what Jesus did for us on Calvary, may we be fervent in our prayers. May we learn to be intercessors alongside you? Would you give us a heart like Jesus that burns with passion for those who are lost? And we ask this in Jesus' name and with Jesus' mouth. Amen.